This is Big Skinny, and on this episode of If Not For Music, we're going to sit in and talk with John Zaka. He is the guy that is producing the documentary on Bobby Kimball, the former lead singer, the original lead singer for the group Toto. The documentary is Cat on a String. We're going to sit down and talk with John, talk about all the things it took to get this done, and it's all coming your way next. So stay tuned. You're located in Dallas, right? In between uh, Preston and the tollway on Frankfurt on the south side. Okay. Yeah. Right where it all, well, I grew up in Michigan, but, you know, I was married here. My dad had car dealerships here when I was younger. I got married and plaintiff number one was here. She lives in New York now, but. Plaintiff number one. <laughs> I love it. I love right. It. Well, I, I see that you were born in Dearborn, Michigan, um, right. 1964, which makes you about two years older than me, which, you know, so we grew about, we, we grew up about the t- same time, the same time frame. So, so tell me a little bit about your childhood and growing up. Well, yeah, I grew up in, I was born in Dearborn, Michigan at Oakwood Hospital. Uh, mom and dad divorced when we were very young, so. I went off to live with my mom. We then lived in Romulus, Hillsdale. And eventually I went back to live with my dad. And, uh, but there was always music in our household. I was in band in school, uh, you know, in and out of band, really. Uh, when I was in junior high, they pulled me to the high school band to play percussion in that. But, uh, and, you know, growing up in Michigan, it's a great music. Detroit area is a great music mecca. Uh, if you will, all the major bands came through there and they would sell out four and five shows. It was unlike most cities where it's just one and done. The bands, the big bands, the Journeys, the Van Halens, the ACDCs, the Aerosmiths, Jay Giles, all of them would come there and play you know, multiple shows. So we got to see a lot of great music there. And my first concert, actually, my first rock concert was uh, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit uh, Wheels. Oh, wow. Good golly, Miss Molly. Good golly. <laughs> Devil with a blue dress. My, my first concert was Pink Floyd. Yeah, well, there you go. Yours tops mine. <laughs> I still, oh. it was the energy from it. I mean, I oh. went to concerts when I was younger with my dad. He'd take us to see the Carpenters and Stan Kenton uh, and the Four Freshmen. And, you know, Stan Kenton, that band, the drummer who was a fireman out of Ypsilanti, would teach me things on drums and or percussion, so... Uh, a lot of music in our household. My grandfather was a saxophone player and toured uh, in the 30s, 40s. I mean, he, you know, they were back when he used to tell me, we're lucky if we got $2 a gig. So is all your family still live in Michigan? No, not all of my family. I only have a cousin that's left living there. I have two sisters here in Dallas. My brother lives in... Uh, my brother lives in uh, Florida, Melbourne, and my half-sister lives in Georgia. Uh, and uh, I'm back and forth between here and Los Angeles, pretty much. 
Yeah, that when you're when you're working on music projects and you've got all your contacts in California, that kind of that's kind of par for the course, isn't it? Well, it is, and I more and more. I mean, I always was, but you know, I, I, I my start really didn't come until I was working for Jeff Lorber. I mean, that's when I really got my feet wet with studio experience and cutting tape and learning all. So through that time, you you learn valuable things like. Somebody was just talking to me about it earlier today about, you know, remote sessions. I'm not a huge fan. We get it done. I got stuff. Lenny Castro just cut percussion on a track for the soundtrack, uh, you know, and it's yeah. remote. But if I have a sessions coming up for the soundtrack in L.A. next month with full band and it's around Bobby's vocal. So it's, you know, I love to see and be involved with full bands in the studio, the, the chemistry and the playoff of each other. That was the first record we did in 95 together, Bobby and I, or 95, 96, was with Buzzy Featon on guitar, Mitchell Foreman on keys, Joel Taylor on drums, Brian Bromberg on bass, horn section, Mickey Thomas, Bobby and I. And the play, the interplay with the musicians, that's where the energy comes from. I mean, yeah. they still get it done with remote sessions, but it's not the same. Well, COVID kind of it's kind of changed everything as far as like everybody getting together in the same room and doing stuff. Right. And it, and it kind of, people kind of started having different habits, even after COVID was no longer the excuse. They, the, the, the habits have already been formed where people are like, you know, we can just do that remote. We did such a good job before we can just do that remotely. You don't have to get, we don't have to all come together. Yeah. It, you know, like I said, the seasoned pros, they get it done. Right. Yeah. But I don't know if, <laughs> You feel the same way as I do. Today's music, um, and I hate being the old man in the room. I'm going to turn 59 next month. But it's just like after, you know, a song comes out and and then you start listening and trying to digest pop radio, and there's just no pulse. There's no feeling. It all, you know, I know they. my grandfather and older guys said when we were younger, that all sounds like ruckus. But really, I mean, I, I have an open mind. It's just... Yeah. And, and a perfect example is that I, I've had a I, I had a singer that's a pretty well-known session singer sing a track for me for the soundtrack. And he didn't uh, he was replacing another vocalist and he didn't digest. He wasn't able to, you know, digest the lyrics. There's something to be said when a musician really takes in what they're doing and makes it their life to put it out there, you know. Yeah. You can tell when it's contrived. You can tell pop radio right now is total contrived machine, money, money, money. Kind of like in the late 80s when the hair bands were doing all those ballads. Yeah. You know, so. You know, there were certain artists that could take a song that wasn't theirs and they could they could put their heart and their emotion into it. And I think Kenny Rogers was one of the best. He didn't write any of his own stuff, but he could take a he could take a song and he could make you believe what he was singing. I mean, he just had that ability. And How about Wichita Lineman? Oh, yeah, Glenn Campbell, man, for sure. Uh -huh. That's those, a great one. Those guys had had the ability to do that. And I'm, I was just talking about a coworker about the same issue today, is that today's music does not have heart, does not have soul. And everybody yeah, tries and to sound we, the same. Every time, uh, when I'm involved in these forums on social media with producers or labels or Zoom, it's like I get the word boomer thrown at me. And, uh, you know, they you can say that all you want, but... You know, especially since they're selling sample packs with preset vocals for verses, pre-courses and choruses and bridges. 
and the drums are loop packs and the keyboards are loop pack, and they're taking that and putting it together. You know, I, I, there's some creativity in them putting that together, but it's already been pre-recorded. So you're missing the point. Live and breathe the song. Yeah, there's no, there's no, uh, one of the, one of the coolest things is, is when you actually write a song, you know, you actually create something from, from just, just out of nothing. And that's one of the biggest things about right. it. And, and you miss all that if you're just the one kind of uh, building a song like you'd put a car together on an assembly line. Yeah. Let's just, uh, one that pops in my head is like Linda Ronstadt. When will I be loved? I mean, you listen to that vocal, that's a delivery. You can hear that in their throat, the harmonic distortion of it. It's just, and the same as with Bobby, who's yeah. the subject of all this. Yeah, Bobby was a real singer. I mean, I'm going through uh, some of his older uh, demos, right? Well, they're not really demos. They recorded them at at uh, Davlin Studios in North Hollywood, and it was a big to-do, and it's going to come out in the film, and people are going to see what happened. Every label wanted Kimball right before Toto, every one of them. All the big guys, Walter Yatnikoff, Mo Austin, they all wanted Kimball, and he chose to go with those guys at Toto. So that's always been squashed, but you listen to his writing. He wrote, like, I think it's, I have a clock at about 42 songs in 1977. Now, granted, probably 25 of them were next level, and some of the other ones were, but he always delivered, and you could feel the story he was telling. And it's the same as it transitions over to Toto and the making of all those guys. That was a perfect storm. But uh, let's just let's, let's just give people an example of his voice real quick. Um, and we're, you know, this is what this is what we're talking about when we talk about voice. So that's just, that was great. Yeah. You know, I have that when I interviewed David Page for the film, uh, I went in there and, and he's just like in the trailer, he says, Bobby picked up the microphone. Am I allowed to, can I say a cuss word? Yeah. Bobby picked up the microphone and sang the shit out of it. Uh, and I have the, as I was going through, I have a mountain of tapes over here spread everywhere. And I had to catalog all this stuff. And for the Kimball estate, and for my research and for I sent it back to all the Toto guys in case they didn't have some of them. Now, we know they probably had some of it and they thanked me and Toto management thing. But I have that first rundown of hold the line. <laughs> and it's true. Bobby picked up the microphone. There wasn't even lyrics yet. It was like, oh, nah, nah, nah. And, but he's screaming away, you know, and the band's so tight. And then the next one round they do it. You can tell they took a break for a minute and started etching out. And boom, here it comes. You know, so it was it was a juggernaut, that whole thing. That is that is really cool. Now you said you guys had a band getting together for some sessions, you say next month. Who can you tell us who's all in the band? Uh yeah. Larry Carlton's son, Travis Carlton, uh, on bass, Joel Taylor on drums, Mitchell Foreman on keys, Tony Polizzi on guitar. He's like the I, you know, it's it's weird to say like the young Lukather of Sessions, but there's a pack of guys there that are like 
there's the rock guys and then there's guys that do jazz and everything and tony's in that group and he's just one of those savants guitar players and he's really easy to work with so i've been using him lately with these sessions but uh we're going to do an old school two song recording it's bobby's original track of him on piano and vocals we ripped his vocal away and the piano's still good so maybe in spots but the band will build around it we're not gonna we're not gonna grid the tempo we're gonna lay it just as bobby put it down yeah and it kind of reminds you although it kind of reminds you of like back in elton john's tumbleweed connection time and that stuff just that old school and we're bringing Len Kovner to the studio who owned Davlin. He's going to mic the drums how they had Jeff's early days because he was Jeff's best friend. And he, that's ground zero for Toto was Davlin Studios. So he's doing all the miking and engineering with me. So it, it should be it should be a beautiful thing. Uh, I'm, I'm going to film it and we'll have parts of it. Now, is that going to be um, a soundtrack that you're going to be able to release after the release of the, the documentary? Oh yeah. oh, yeah. I've already... There's uh, the Kickstarter we ran to help raise money for the music licensing because the cost of the 18 Toto songs is pretty astronomical. Um, With like 35000 or something like that? Well, that was just to help. I mean, it's more than that. The retail was right around 150000 so I wow. can negotiate some of that. But I needed help because I've already spent about seventy five grand of my own money uh, of you know this money to do this film so far. So it was just getting expensive and it really, and because of that, and I'm sorry, I moved around a little bit, but it's like, it started out to be one thing and it just kept growing. I realized that this had to be really special because I was not only representing Bobby, but I'm bringing attention to that band and you want it to be first class and you want it to be done right. So, you know, I, I just, it, it needed to be what it is, and it's still growing. Bobby's being inducted into the California Music Hall of Fame September 23rd, and the whole show's dedicated to him. So we're filming that, and we're filming the sessions, and, you know, it's an ongoing thing. Uh, we're editing right now the first third, and we're moving on. Hopefully we'll be done in a in a few months here, and, and we'll be ready to go. We already have a couple distributors looking at us, uh, and they're – they want content because of those strikes right now. Yeah, I bet so, you they do. Uh, I, I'm i holding up. I mean, I don't think they're, the offer's not on the table yet, but it's coming. And I think I'm going to hold off a little bit uh, because I realize I have something special here. And I wanted to get the best. Uh, one, of the, one, one of the distributors, um, you know, they're talking Netflix uh, original. So... There's just all kinds of things to think about. And I was never a filmmaker. I'm a studio musician guy, you know, music guy. So this is a new territory for me. But I learn every day. I learn something. So so going back to your childhood or your early years, who were some of your musical influences? As my phone drops. Um, <laughs> like I said, it was all over the map. You know, my dad was playing what you call gangster music. It was Sinatra, Stan Kenton. It was Tony Bennett. It was all that kind of stuff that, you know, romance mob music, if you will. And then my mom was more into like Carly Simon. She was, uh, you know, into that kind of stuff. James Taylor, uh, you know. Carol King. Huh? Carol King, big time. Man, that stuff just played in rotation on the A-track. 
Remember that when you push the oh, yeah. left button and it go conk, conk, and move to the next track. Oh, conk, yeah. conk. <laughs> <laughs> that thing was playing all the time on our vacations. We thought we were moving up town when we got the cassette singles. Right. And then, you know, growing up in that area, though, we had Motown. That was big. You know, we were blessed to have Motown. So I got a taste of all kinds of music. And and then in my high school years, I got into rock. I loved ACDC. I loved when Bon Scott was singing with them. I liked the character of it all and the stories behind it. And, you know, just general rock music. And, and you know, I heard the Toto first record. I was never a super fan at first. I loved his voice. I thought, you know, like one of my friends said, he turned the record over and he thought he was going to see a black guy. And it was Bobby <laughs> just because of that soul and that voice. Yeah. So, uh, but I never, you know, I never really learned until doing all these take home tapes and, you know, rough mixes and, and rehearsals and live events of theirs and cataloging it. They truly are like a Beatles for me because the way they laid it down, they were so surgical. I mean, they were top notch that brain or all those brains were like one. They knew, I mean, one or two takes, it was so surgical and so perfect. And those guys had so many musical influences and you could see it in their, in their, their music style. I mean, you couldn't, you couldn't nail down their music as being one thing, you know, you couldn't say it was this or it was that because there was so much, it was so diverse. Right. And yeah. And you know, that Bobby coming into the fold brings in that Dr. John, Louisiana soul voice Yeah, that adds to that California precision, you know? So it was, it was a perfect storm and it was meant to happen. Now, you know, there's some doing this film, Jeff's choice. Well, first of all, David wanted Bobby from the beginning, but Bobby was in SS fools with Joe Shermie and Floyd Sneed and the guys from three dog night, they were signed to CBS and that lasts about 18 months. So when they went out with boss gags, David still thought Bobby was in that, but Jeff, when they were putting this together and the name wasn't Toto yet, that was an accident. Um, Jeff wanted Will Lee, Jeff Picaro wanted Will Lee on vocals. And David thought if Bobby's not available, they thought about Michael McDonald, but he was already from transition from Steely Dan to the uh, Doobie Brothers. And then they talked to Kenny Loggins, but Kenny Loggins wanted a backup band and they weren't willing to be that. Also, they talked to Mickey Thomas from Starship, who's one of my dear friends and Bobby's dear friends. And uh, he, wa uh, he was interested, but I don't know, somehow David had his heart set on Bobby. So when he did find out and they got back from Boss Gags tour, Silk Degrees tour, Len Kovner had that demo I told you about earlier. And Jeff, yeah. best friends with Len, comes in, the word's out all on the street, where's this demo? This demo is making news everywhere. And he goes into the control room and listens to it and then takes off, takes the demo, doesn't give it back to Len and takes off to meet David. And then David calls Bobby and it's over. Bobby joins them. That was, it's greatness. It's greatness. So when you, I know you played music for a while and then you got into the production side of it. What did you enjoy more? Did you enjoy the music side of it or the production side? I enjoy tinkering in the studio. I'm one of those guys that just, I like, I like the, uh, the task and the challenge of taking something and trying to make it sound what you perceive is better. Now, if it's a client's project, you're just trying to 
listen to what their rough mix is if they're if you're fortunate enough to get one and try to expand upon that what their vision is but when it's mine i just love sitting here i'll i'll solo a part and tinker with it and you know i'm over here i got hardware stuff and i'm i'm like doing my thing and i like that i like i like being left alone probably why i'm not in a relationship right now or haven't been for seven or eight years because i feel so guilty because every time i'm in a relationship they i'm coming to bed at four or five in the morning they're like really really is this what it's like you know or how can you be still working on that piano part but I play some of the parts myself or, uh, you know, like I peeled off on one of the Kimball songs. I played some percussion the other night and, you know, it just depends on if it needs it, but I'm more since doing that first record with Bobby in 95, 96, January of 96, really. And Tom Dowd, the producer sitting in with me because Greg Allman wasn't showing up for his sessions sessions. Tom Dowd told me, he goes, you're doing the right thing, kid. You got to let these guys play. That's how you're going to get the best thing. I'd only insert myself if there's really like an outro or something I wanted, but yeah. you let these guys play. You don't sit there and, you know, try to micromanage players that are this great. And you always surround yourself with great players, you know, try to. All right. Give me just, give me just a second. We're going to take a commercial break and we'll be right back. Hey y'all, this is Big Skinny, former radio personality and backyard cooking enthusiast. And I'm the host of Texas Backyard Barbecue and More. This is the premier channel for all things Texas barbecue. And we're gonna teach you how to cook it in your backyard. In fact, each episode is gonna provide step-by-step instructions on how to make the most delicious meals using every Texas cooking technique that we could come up with. So sit back, work up that appetite and get out to the shed and find those grilling tools. And get ready as we dive headfirst into Texas Backyard Barbecue and More. Oh, yeah, make sure you like and subscribe so we can keep on cooking for you. Let's get smoking. All right, we're back, man. I'm sorry, man. I had to let my dog out. Skinny barbecue. <laughs> had to let my I dog out. I got some of that barbecue, brother. Yeah, yeah, check out that YouTube channel, man. We're loving it. We uh, we actually had a chance to get on a Netflix series here uh, in July. We were catering this uh, for a movie crew, and uh, we got a chance to be on a Netflix series so that we can promote our barbecue video series. So we're kind of excited about that. Happening, man. That's great. So uh, how did you meet Bobby Kimball? Well, let's see if you, uh, there's some tax. Well, there's some Louisiana guys that were up in your, you've been here most of your life, right? I've been in Texas my whole life. So do you know John Smith, the saxophone player? I know of him. Yeah. So uh, John Smith is responsible for Bobby getting to California. He called Bobby and uh, he was with Joe Shermie and said uh, they need a vocalist. And so Bobby dropped everything and left and went right there. But John's John's on Make Believe, and he was on the Toto 4 uh, tour, and he's on this track, Make Believe, from Toto 4 that won the six Grammys. And he's from – he was most popular with Edgar Winter's White Trash Band, but also did the Boss Gag stuff. So those guys were Texas guys, and Bobby's been through here a few times. Now, I had gotten married here in – Wow, I'm I'm forgetting, and it's like n- nice to forget for once. <laughs> I got married to plaintiff number one in '86. Uh, I think it was '86, and it, it didn't go well. So I was playing in bar bands, and uh, some things went down, and I left immediately and took off to California. And I had this grand plan of going to Musicians Institute. Well, silly me, you need money to do that, right? Yeah. 
So I, I showed up there and I literally stayed at a friend's house and then I got a job at Guitar Center Hollywood. And uh, a guy I worked there with named Vince Bilbro that was on the guitar floor, I started as a door guy and then I worked my way through. But uh, I met Vince Bilbro and he was the bass player in Bobby's first band after Toto called the Bobby Kimball Band. So Bobby had come into the store a couple of times and I met him like in 1989. Uh, and then I was transferred to the Dallas store to open the first Dallas Guitar Center on Spring Valley, that 441, I think they called it. So I was assistant or I was uh, 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 accessory manager. Um, during when I went back and I started working for Jeff Lorber, I was Jeff Lorber's second engineer in uh, Pacific Palisades at his studio. I lived at this place. And when Jeff would, when I, he, we'd be done, and, and there was rarely any time for being done, he had so many keyboards because Jeff's a keyboard player. And I had this O1W there that had a sequence on it. And I would write songs because I heard one of the live things with Vince and Bobby and the Bobby Kimball band. And he was doing White Snake. And I was like, he doesn't. I'm doing White Snake. He's an R&B singer doing rock is what he is. So I started writing these tunes and I got his address in Woodland Hills on Shoop. And I used to put tapes in his mailbox. And I put like four of them in there and I'd always leave my pager. You know, back then we didn't have cell phones. We had a pager. So I left, uh, I left my pager in uh, my pager number in there. And he finally called one night and he goes, come on over. Or he paged me and I called him back. He says, come on over. So we stayed up all night on the piano, man, writing tunes and me playing him some of mine, him playing me some of his. That's why it's so easy for me to identify a lot of this stuff on these tapes because it's stuff he played for me and I've known all these years. So 89 was when I first met him. But, you know, then we we started writing some songs together, but then we drifted apart for a minute and I came to Dallas to produce a project you know the band Emerald City? Yes. That's my brother-in-law's band, Dino really? Taglioli. Really? Yeah. So uh, he would do, Dino was doing a solo project, and I came in to help with that in the studio. And Bobby came through and sang, guested on a track, and and they they sat in at the Broadway Grill that was the Emerald City where they their home club here in Addison. Uh, so. I had just written a song with my friend Dave Barnett uh, called Christine and another song called Till Tomorrow. And we had done the demo. And after one night at the Broadway, when Bobby's band came through here, they sat in with Emerald City. The place went crazy. We got a, they got on a tour bus and we all drove north up not too far from where I'm at right now in this Tollway Frankfurt area and went to a friend's house. And my friend, there was probably 50 to 75 people there. He put the cassette tape in and Bobby was sitting on the couch talking to me and all these people were there, you know, girls trying to talk to Bobby and, and the song started playing and, and my friend's like, everybody shut up. And Bobby's sitting there and he's listening and he takes me in the other room and he goes, that's a hit. That's a hit. We got to do a project. So then it was off to the races, me trying to figure out raising the money to do a project. I moved to San Francisco. Then we started that first project that went down there, the first record, which is called All I Ever Needed. But people, please do not buy that record. We don't see any of that money. Somebody stole that record. I have it back now. It's been rebuilt for the soundtrack. So all new mixes, everything better. 
So that's kind of the nutshell of the Bobby Kimball John Zaka show. So y'all stayed y'all stayed y'all stayed in contact all these years after that that first. Uh, well, yes. So after that record, ninety six up till February, because I did the string section in Vegas February sixteenth, nineteen ninety six, on two songs, then went back, we mixed, and then we had an offer. Uh, my dear friend and Bobby's manager and my publishing administrator Lucille Hunt. Uh, got us a, a, a somebody, an A&R person at MCA. They were interested. And she, the lady called me. I forget her name. Lucille probably knows it. But we had a conference call, Bobby, I, myself, and this person from MCA. They offered us a three-record deal. In 1996, grunge was getting going. And, you know, so it was like I was interested. It was a pretty healthy deal. And Bobby was on the other line. He goes, I'm not interested and hung up the phone. And the lady said, it looks like we don't have a deal. Well, I didn't realize that Bobby was already talking to some guy in Europe that ended up being quite the scumbag and thief. He'd ripped off some opera singer. and But Bobby didn't know all this. Neither did Bobby's dad. So this guy was able to kind of mow over. So what ended up happening is that I went to do a remix. Bobby asked me to do a remix in North Hollywood. That guy was there. He took the dats, went to Europe, signed a deal with Point Music, and then another one with Frontier without my signature. So off to the races that went. And then that guy eventually did a lot of things wrong to Bobby, and Bobby learned his lesson. But my life became hell. I dove into addiction. I got very angry because uh, our songs were charting, number one, number three, number seven. I mean, they were always on the charts over there, and I wasn't seeing anything from it. So it just made me angry. I was too young to be able to have the emotional stability to keep everything together. So I just uh, decided drugs were the best way. So I ended up in the hospital in the end. Um, they saved my life. I went to North Carolina for about nine years, reclaimed my life. Didn't want to get in music again, but then finally realized through the help of a therapist that music is my way that I communicate with the world. And when you take that away, you're never going to grow again. You'll never have the peace that you want. So as much as I didn't like the business at the time, but the whole time I was in North Carolina, Bobby was calling, wanting to do another record. So I kept saying, no, no, no. And then finally I said, okay, as long as Lucille handles all of the admin, you don't touch any of it. And he's like, fine. He had just finished with Yoso. So he was already out of Toto. He did the Yoso thing with the guys from Yes. You know, they had that thing for a minute. So I said, yes. I came to L.A. Well, we recorded some in Dallas. We recorded some in L.A. and and, uh, Altadena, North Hollywood. We built the record. We're not in Kansas anymore. Got signed to three labels. We were in the Grammy voting. But then... I knew from the start of that record, that's why I go to North Carolina to get better, only to come back and Bobby's starting to unwind. This is when I start seeing signs. I don't know what it is yet. Nobody knows. And nobody really ID'd it as much as myself and another producer, uh, Brian Bromberg, that we started noticing very odd behavior. You know, he'd be in the middle of a vocal take and say, like, uh, when are we going to be done? I got to go to the 99 cent store. He'd never say anything like that before. Yeah. 99 cent store over your vocal take. And he was had some anger issues and just some weird things. So it just unfolded. It un, 
I never got the vocal performances I would have liked for that record. So it's kind of a bitter pill for me too. But, you know, we, it was a big thing in our head to build that record. You know, we, it was going to be a great thing. And then he just couldn't, I mean, he, his hearing was gone. He lost everything from 400 Hertz up. His mind was starting to go and we didn't know that it was frontotemporal dementia then. Uh, and it just, it kept unfolding and you'll see in the documentary kind of what happens in the end. And it's a heartbreaking story, but it also has hope and all that other stuff in it. Well, you know, <clears throat> even if it wasn't the best that he could have done, the fact that you were able to go in there and record one last album with him, that has to be something worth worth, worth remembering. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a like on my feet is is really pretty good. It, it, that would have been his wheelhouse if I would have had that song in 96 with him. And I mean, we still got like songs like My Kind of Lover from back then that he digs in and he has that R&B swag. But on my feet, he, he delivered pretty good for We're Not in Kansas. But if it would have been 96, Bobby Kimball or earlier, he would have ripped that thing apart like nobody's business, man. It's just that's his wheelhouse. So tell us why you decided to take on this massive project, mm. caught, caught on a string. Okay, so the record I keep referring to from 95, 96, All I Ever Needed, um, I was doing a project. We started a project, Tony Polizzi, Joel Taylor, Mitchell Foreman. Uh, Michael Haddad was involved in the first one. Anyway, we started this project called Tennington Park. Right. And we were taking old songs and covering them and turning them into something different. So we started with Open Arms and a singer from Weatherford out in your area. Uh, Rhett Beggs was on that. Uh, and then we did Layla with Will Champlin with Bill's son. Will. Yeah. Uh, then we did Work to Do with Mickey Thomas and Bill Champlin. Mickey Thomas from Starship. So the guy that sang Fool Around and Fell in Love and We Built This City and Sarah and all. Anyway, so we covered that song. And while I was there tracking with them uh, at Carmen Grillo's studio, um, I had been going over and seeing Bobby because he's literally right down the street and checking on him. And it was like, wow, things have really advanced here. And I was trying to love on him and, and you know, let him know I'm here for him. And it's... It, I mean, there's video diaries when I started this thing, leaving there where I'm just in tears because this is a guy that was so well studied and books and movies and, you know, current affair. And, you know, he just, that's gone. So anyway, I picked up the reels uh, for the first record we did and I was having them transferred at Clear Lake Studios in Burbank. So when I got back to Dallas after those sessions and seeing Bobby the few times while I was there, I got back here and I loaded the tracks into Pro Tools because they dump it from analog tape to the drives. And I'm sitting here and and I've talked about this before in interviews. I, like right now, I probably, my ringer's off, but when you're talking about him, he texts messages. He used to call more, but so I'm soloing his vocal on one of the tracks and I'm like sitting here going, what am I going to do with this stuff? This is Bobby in his prime. And it's like, we're in a streaming time now. Nobody gives a shit. Uh, 
what's the best thing to do here? And he was heavy on my heart anyway from just being there. And he called at that moment and he, there was no specific thing. He, I answered the phone and he said, John, I'm Bobby. And I said, I know Bobby. And he goes, will you help me? And I was like, of course, man. And my eyes were watering up. Of course, I'll always help you, Bobby. And we finished our call, which it's hard for him to hear. So it's like hard to get the conversation. So we we ended the phone call and I looked at the screen and I just something clicked right then. I need to do this. And there was one other thing that happened too. my mother died right around this time. And we had to be there during COVID in North Carolina. She had a grapefruit-sized tumor in her liver. And she wanted to die at home. It was during COVID. And that last 72 hours, each of us kids would, I would go in the family room and sit next to her. And she telling me my last, you know, what, what does she want from me? And Bobby had been calling their house. And my stepfather would answer the phone. And Bobby would think it was me and talk to him for 30 minutes. So as my mom's telling me, getting ready to tell me end of life, what she wants for me. My stepfather walks up and said, Oh dear, Bobby just called. And he thought I was John. And, and my mom looked at me and she said, I know you guys have been through a lot, but please, you need to look out for him. And I said, I will mom. I will. And then she said, I want you to continue to love and be loved, never plagiarize and look out for your friend. So that came in at the same time Bobby did this phone call. I'm like, ah, now it makes sense. I'm supposed to do this. And then, Kenny, another thing is, is everybody's turned this whole thing that Bobby was not liked by Toto and Toto did not like Bobby and all this stuff. I, I needed to help clear that by bringing attention to Bobby's career and bringing attention to what this band was able to achieve with Bobby as well as the rest of their, I mean, everybody knows it, but it's really something special. So I, I wanted to do this justice and just carry this thing through and, and let it have the peace it deserves and the recognition it deserves. So that's kind of the story of how this all took place. And, you know, when I was done doing that, I got up the next morning, I grabbed the trash in my studio. I went downstairs. We had ice here in Dallas, Fort Worth. It was 18 months ago, I think. Uh, I walked out the garage door. I had my flip-flops on, cracked my head on the pavement. Oh, man. Got up, and it was on camera, and my sister was laughing at me, but I, I had a concussion. I went to the Baylor whatever over here, and I, as soon as I got out of there, the next morning I left for Louisiana and started filming and never looked back. And here we are 18 months later, and, uh, you know, I've got, I don't know, 30, 35 hours, 40 hours of footage. Uh, that I'm going through and, you know, that I've recorded, that I've personally sat here with cameras interviewing people. So is this going to be like a several episode type deal? No, or is it going to be, no, it's it's be like be a, a two hour film. Okay. So documentary, but I, you know, I don't have any rules and maybe that's a bad thing or maybe it's a good thing. I don't have rules. So, you know, I'm not a, I'm not saying filmmakers are jaded, but you know, a lot of them are like, Ah, I need to do this Vorte style. There is no style. I'm just doing it. And I'm doing it with my heart and what it feels right to me. And, you know, by the responses from the trailer, first of all, the most important thing was from the family and the band and overwhelming the band and family were just, I mean, the messages I got from 
I won't go into names, but parts of the band were just unbelievably overwhelming. Great. I mean, they were, they were crying. They're happy. They, whatever you need, you know? So I, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. It's right. And it's, and it's pure. Well, it's cool that, uh, Steve and David and, and, uh, you know, we're, Steve we're, Picaro, Lenny, yeah, Lukather, we're, we're, I mean, I it was glad to see they were a part of it. Oh yeah. Joe Williams, Greg Fillingains, Lee Sklar. I mean, they're all that have been there. Simon Phillips, you know, Paul Jamison, who was Jeff's main drum tech from the beginning and was through all that stuff with them. Uh, John Smith, Bill Champlin, yeah. Mickey Thomas, Bill, you know, Cham Bill Champlin's a good dude, man. He's the best, isn't he? He's a good dude. Is he not funny, too? <laughs> he's, he's hilarious. He's a great man. Funkier than a three-day-old Band-Aid. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, well, okay, so what were some of the hardships that you faced while you were doing this? Go ahead, man. I'm right back at you. Guilty pleasures. Where were some, what were, now, go back again, question what, for me. What were some of the hardships you faced while you were doing this? Other than, I know that the the monetary deal at the end, you know, trying to get all the, the rights for the music and everything was a pretty big hardship, but what are some of the other obstacles you faced? I don't think there really have been any obstacles. Uh, you know, the obstacle for me is that I don't have the money. First of all, I'm not a filmmaker. Like I told you before, I didn't have the, I didn't sit down here and go, all right, I need a DP. I need this. I need that. I need this guy. I need that. I have an editor, Robert Kaufman, amazing. I have a post mixer, TJ Calloway, amazing, and myself. So all the phone calls, all the research, all, that's why sometimes when you text me, I feel bad. Hey, man, dude, I'm, but it's like, it's all on 24-7 for me. I've, yeah. I haven't gotten a lot of sleep in the last 18 months. So the biggest hardship is the time that it takes, but it's well worth it. So money is always... You know, but it's not like anything else in your life. I, I don't know how to explain this right, but, you know, when you wanted a car when you were younger and you're like, it's $30,000, how can I, you know, this you don't even think, you just keep going. Yeah. And it works itself out. Like when it came time, I talked to another filmmaker that just, his just got caught up for distribution. Uh, and he did one on the, on the, on the band that did all the, you know, it's, he did the wrecking crew and now he did the immediate family. And he told me something. He said, I know you don't want to hear this, or I, I don't know if he said it like that, but he said, you need to do a Kickstarter. Don't, I'm, he said, uh, you know, the cost it cost me to do the wrecking crew with the musicians union, the licensing, it's astronomical. And I wasn't even there yet thinking I, I was figuring out, and, you know, and there's other people that say, Oh, you can do fair use, 13 seconds. I didn't want to do any of that. I wanted everything above board. I want this band happy as hell. And I want Kimball, you know, Bobby doesn't understand it, but the family, the estate, I want them happy. And I need myself happy. So there really hasn't been any hardships except for when I decided to do the Kickstarter, um, I, I just, it, it felt weird to me, like you're asking for money. And I'm sure there were people out there going, oh, come on, there's, people that need a kidney right now or somebody needs a lung and you're here raising money, but there, if you go into Kickstarter, there's a film division, there's a music division, there's a tech division, there's people with products. This is a 
a business. It's not like I'm sitting here. If you didn't want to, you know, if you didn't want to donate or pledge, then you just don't. Yeah. Well, the thing about it is too, is somebody watching that might be going through the same situation with a loved one and it could help somebody, you know, you never know how it could touch somebody. And it, it was extremely important, important to bring awareness to this because it is a rare thing. Um, it, it, I mean, I've been with people with dementia and Alzheimer's before. This is a different animal. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's wrong to call it an animal. He's not an animal. It's just a different, yeah. different thing, man, because sometimes he just wants what he wants and he can get very aggressive and, and it, words are starting. You know, Bruce Willis started with words. That's why he retired. Then it's gone to memory, I guess, and behavior. I can't say that for sure, but I know the AFTD, the Association for Frontal Temporal Degeneration, is helping the family. And I had an hour-long Zoom with them. They're going to be helping Jasmine, Bobby's wife. But with Bobby, it's like sometimes you'll be at a Starbucks and he'll just take off running for a drugstore and he thinks that he's supposed to just grab everything and start shoving it down his pants. And you're like, and he... He loses his mind. He doesn't. It, he doesn't know what he, he thinks. He's perfectly fine, you know. Yeah. If he got behind a jet plane as a pilot, he'd think he was perfectly fine, you know. They think that nothing's wrong. Yeah, we've got a, a family member that is going through something similar like that, and we did our crawfish uh, last May, and I'm I'm in charge of, of boiling the crawfish, and this lady comes up like she's fixing to stick her hands right in the boiling vat of crawfish to grab some crawfish and i'm like i had to had to pull her back man because she was she just right. didn't know what she was doing and and it's it just affects people so differently man right and it, this this frontal temporal dementia usually affects people like late 40s 50s so it's rare for it to hit later on like that so i think when i started bobby 2000 12, late 12, early 13, we started the first vocal. I think it was some they do off the We're Not in Kansas anymore. I noticed some things there, and I think it was already starting then, and it just kept, you know, kept coming. Hindsight. Yeah. But uh, it's very sad, but all we can do now, all he really knows now is he's constantly telling you he loves you. I love you so much. I mean, my messages are there's no voicemails on my phone except for Bobby because they there's so many of them and all the text messages. I love you so much. So that's what he knows the most. That's why in the, in the trailer, the only sector remaining is love because really that's what it is. So is this something you think you would take up again for another, you know, another artist or is this just like a labor of love that is a one-time deal? Well, if I ever was, maybe co-works isn't the word if i was ever wanted to do it again i would make sure a crew is around me because it's just you want to be courteous to everybody and the calls and all the research and the fact that i'm the filmmaker here the director the producer the writer uh robert's the editor and we kind of edit together anyway and the composer and the mu- the guy mixing it and the guy running the sessions, producing the sessions, and the guy fixing all of the old recordings, and the guy cataloging the music. I'm, I'm covering every department. I would need a crew around me if I ever do this again. But I knew that if I was going to do this, 
And it wasn't until Steve Lukather, a text from him said, please, kind of in the beginning, it was him and Alan Friedman, and he put a text into me, please don't let this be a YouTube video. He knew that it needed, and that, you know, everything, that's why I never, you know, I wrote down a treatment, I ripped it up, I wrote down a treatment, I ripped it up, I wrote... I, I kept writing things and I was just like, just go get the footage. And and it's unveiled itself. It's a human story. You got mental illness a little bit with me recovering and going through all the North Carolina. You got him now with mental illness, really. That's what they treat yeah. this with. You got addiction. You got pop music culture. You have a human story. That's why I wanted to make it powerful like that instead of just like a normal documentary. It's like Robert Troy Kimball was born march 29th and you know it needed to have life yeah you know kind of kind of match the artist himself yeah because we know him as uh the kite on the string that's yeah. where i got it yeah ruby kimball his mother bobby i asked ruby in 1997 ruby what was bobby like as a child oh boy he was a kite on a string you had to hang on for dear life <laughs> <laughs> that's well, brother, why the string's breaking off in the logo <laughs> Brother, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you go, but I'm gonna ask you one more question. When do you think this is gonna be released for people to view? Um, we're saying late fall right now, early winter. Uh, hope hopefully, I mean, we should be done by then. And I'm accelerating things, and I know that you know, be maybe six or seven months ago, I was still like, well, should I do this or should I do that? Well, maybe I should change this. Maybe I should start it with this. Maybe. I, I know right now. I, I I solidly know where it's going. Everything about it. So it's, I'm on a fast track right now. Cool beans, so, man. All right. I can't wait to see it. Big, big skinny. <laughs> it's a pleasure being on with you all the way to Fort Worth from Dallas to Fort Worth. We're, what are we, an hour from each other by yeah, drive? About an hour. <laughs> right. I, I can really holler out the window at you. Right. I'm going to send my pigeons out the window for you right now. They're going to bring right. me some barbecue back. 